Welcome to episode nine of the Quantified Body. I'm Damien Blinkinsop. A couple of cutting edge and very relevant quantified body topics today. We're looking at the microbiome, which you probably have seen is a big news topic in the health media and the news in general for the last few years. Research is increasingly relating differences in our microbiome to a range of disease conditions, primarily chronic and gut-related ones. If you're already buying the probiotics or prebiotics in the health stores, the reason you're doing that is for your microbiome. But what, if anything, do the probiotic and prebiotic products do for us? How dangerous is taking antibiotics through changes they make to our microbiomes? How does what we eat influence our microbiome? It's hoped that quantifying the microbiome, understanding what types of bacteria and other things make it up, will provide a lot more insights into our microbiomes. But how far has the science behind quantifying it actually advanced? How reliable is it? And can it lead to us making decisions that improve our microbiomes and in turn lead to better health and less disease, potentially resolving some of the chronic health conditions that we have? As we'll see, this is really cutting edge currently and changing fast, but we have an excellent guest today to bring us up to date on all of this. The second topic we'll be looking at is citizen science, also known as crowd science. And this is really a movement that the quantified body is deeply tied into. This is all about us having more access to information about our bodies and access to understanding experiments, performing experiments on ourselves to help resolve conditions or improve our performance, and so on. So it was really about time we discussed this subject in detail on this podcast too. And Jessica Richman, our guest today, is CEO and co-founder of Ubiome. Ubiome is the largest crowd science or citizen science-driven project to date. It is also the most popular of the consumer microbiome services and is just about to go through a revolution thanks to recently having gained significant funding and the backing of Y Combinator, as well as many big name investors such as Mark Anderson and Tim Ferriss. Jessica herself has an impressive background having started and sold her first company in high school and having accumulated countless scholarships and awards in academic institutions including Oxford in the UK and Stanford. Her major interests include network analytics, innovation, collective intelligence and crowd science and of course the microbiome. You can get the show notes, the interview transcript, and the MP3 download for today by going to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episode nine. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Hi, Jessica. Thank you very much for being on the show. Hi. It's great to be here. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. It's our pleasure. So to kick off with, let's talk about what the microbiome actually is. I understand it's not just the gut. So how would you describe the microbiome? So the microbiome are the organisms, the microorganisms that live on and in all of us. And there are many different microbiomes in the body. I think we should take a step back first, though, and say, like, what is, why is it called the microbiome? What is a biome? So a biome is an 
ecological area. So in the macrobiomes or the biome that we we are part of, you can be part of the rainforest or a desert or the tundra. And these are environments in which organisms live. And in the in the body, the microbiome, or actually it could be anywhere, not just in the human body, but the microbiome are the microenvironments that organisms live in. So if you think about it, it's very different living inside your nose than it is living on the surface of your nose. So inside your nose, it's windy, it's warm, <laughs> it's slightly wet. <laughs> you know, there's an immune system interactions with human cells. On the outside of your nose, it's probably cold, it's drier, it gets sunlight. There's different kinds of cells that the bacteria are interacting with. So if you think about it, it's a very different type of place to live for a bacteria. So it's like you could use an analogy looking at the world and the jungles, the deserts and all, all of these kind of things. They've got different kind of things living in them. Exactly right. If you think about it, the outside of your nose is much more like a desert and the inside of your nose is more like the rainforest, let's say, um, because it's, you know, it's a very wet environment for an organism to live in. So if you think about it that way, it makes sense that there are microbiomes all over your body. I mean, it's very different. All these spots have very different types of organisms living in them. And that microorganisms are really influenced by the environment that they're in. You know, what can survive in various environments is very different, just like you don't have plants of the rainforest don't do very well when they're in the desert, that microorganisms that normally live in the rainforest die off when they're put in the desert. And it's not just it's not just bacteria, of course, there are also other microorganisms. So there are fungi and yeast and all sorts of other organisms that live there. Um, and it's this whole ecosystem that we were just never able to see until recently, because now it's just become less expensive to sequence the DNA of all these organisms, some of which couldn't can't be cultured. So previously, you'd figure out what was living there by trying to grow it in a Petri dish. But that means you have to have the right food, the right conditions. It has to be able to be grown in that kind of environment. And not all organisms can be. So now we can find out things that were just impossible to see before. So now we know more about the microbiome. And we've learned that my nose, the inside of my nose is much more like the inside of your nose than my nose is like my foot, let's say. <laughs> because these are very different environments, right? Like my, our feet have more in common than the same spot on your body, but very different types of places. So uh, the NIH funded a project called the Human Microbiome Project, which was sort of supposed to follow on after the Human Genome Project to learn about the human microbiome. And they looked at uh, 250 people and they established a lot of this sort of basic technology for doing this. And what we do at Ubiome is we've scaled up that technology and we've made it possible for anyone to have access to the same technology to understand what's in their microbiome and various sites and then what to do about it. Is this like PCR DNA analysis or, or what? Um, so it's next generation sequencing, which is, there are a number of different platforms, but kind of the leading one at the moment is made by a company called Illumina. And they make what is basically... A camera. It's it's funny. We we just got one, and it, it looks like a printer scanner, like an HP printer scanner combo, like one of those things you buy off a supply store. It looks like that, but what it actually does is you put a tiny tube of liquid in it that has the DNA in our case of you know 500 different people's microbiomes, and it's in this like seriously the tube is like less than an inch long. You stick it in there, and then it's a camera that takes pictures of each of the base pairs of the DNA as it goes along, and then tells you what the base pair is. So yeah, it's super, it's really amazing oh, technology. Wow. I mean, they've really, they've changed the world. Yeah. <laughs> so just to be clear, is, is that something you're going to be using or is that what you've used to date? Yeah. So that's what we use right now. So right now we do next generation sequencing. We've been sending that out to 
uh, various people to get, we sort of do all the processing and they just kind of, it's kind of like sending out your printing to Kinko's or something like you prepare the document and what should be in it. And then you do the printing part in our, and we've now brought that in house because we, we've raised some, some funding and we sort of have the opportunity to bring it in house, which gives us a lot more flexibility. It's lower cost. We can do things faster because you know, it's right here. So this is the technology we've been using all along. And this enables us to really inexpensively, I mean, a consumer price point for $89 to be able to tell you exactly what's in the DNA of all the bacteria that are living in your microbiome. Yeah. So what are the limitations of this? Because just a minute ago, you were talking about the fact that the microbiome has fungi and, yes, and bacteria. Exactly. Today, even like there's, there's viruses, right? Yes, there are viruses. Bacteriophage, like viruses that infect bacteria. All this crazy stuff that we don't hear about, but it's actually super complex. And so are you just looking at the bacteria aspect of it? So yeah. So we have the capability to look at fungi and even to do full metagenomic sequencing, which is to look at every organism, all the DNA that is in the sample, whether whether it's bacterial or human or plants or from the food you've been eating or every bit of DNA that's in the sample. But we've currently sell to consumers the bacteria because it's just, it's simpler. It's like, it's easier to compare. We have more people who have those kind of samples, but there's definitely things that we're developing for the future, products that we're developing for the future based on specific other slices of the microbiome like fungi. And full metagenomic sequencing is really expensive. It's thousands of dollars. So it's not really a good, you know, <laughs> there's as much consumer demand for that. Right. So do people understand like 23andMe is pretty well known and they've taken, they took a similar approach. They're only scanning certain aspects of genetics. Well, it's a little different. So 23andMe looks at SNPs. So what they look at are single nucleotide polymorphisms that are specific parts of the human genome that are known to be correlated with specific research outcomes. What we do is we look at all the bacteria. So there are other technologies that some people use that are based on microarrays that will only look for certain bacteria. So instead of, it's kind of an intermediate point between a culture-based method and, this may be too technical, but uh, so with culture, you say, you know, is X bacteria there? Yes or no? Does it grow or not? And maybe it couldn't grow, or maybe you did it wrong, or whatever. So there's sort of some fallibility built into that. With a microarray method, you say, are any of these 96 bacteria there? And it can check for all of them. With next-generation sequencing, you can find everything that's there. And we're selectively looking at just bacteria because it's at a sort of price point that consumers can can pay. Right, right. And uh, is this a selection of bacteria? Because I, I assume there's a classification, uh, you know, a library of what is known well today. And maybe there's some things that we just don't know are there. So does it see everything or? That's true. Yeah. It's every, well, it's everything that's known plus all the things we're finding. So there are some public databases of bacteria. What we've done is we've taken the public databases and then added our own, basically enhanced them. So we've added in, you know, they're public databases. So people upload a lot of junk to them that they think is a good idea to upload. It's <laughs> just, you know, they're like not very well curated academic databases. So we've taken those databases and cleaned them up and streamlined them and added a bunch of things to them to make them better. Yeah, so I think like what's coming across is that this is quite new and it's exploratory. So the Human Biome Project, Microbiome Project, how long ago was that? And So that started in 2007 and it went till 2012. And we started our company with a crowdfunding campaign actually two months after the Human Microbiome Project ended. So we sort of had this, you know, my background's not in biology, it's in computer science and economics. And I was doing a PhD in computational social science and learning about 
applied math relating to social networks. And I just saw like there's so much interesting information relating to biology and some of the same skills that I was learning could be applied to this new information that was coming out. So we started this project right after the human microbiome project ended. And it's really new. I mean, the Human Microbiome Project was really groundbreaking and helped establish this whole field. And you can see, like, the number of scientific papers that relate to the microbiome is on this exponential curve up, you know, as the Human Microbiome Project progresses. But we decided to take this technology and bring it to the public really quickly. Yeah, yeah. So at the stage now, for the consumers, what do you think, what can they get from it if they get their biome. Well, first of all, like you've talked about microbiome. So you do the gut, you do the nose, genitals, mouth. Mouth, uh, mm. skin, and genitals. Those are the ones we currently do. So we have the technical capability to do other sites, and we're going to be launching some products that relate to the skin, for example, um, between your toes, things like that. But uh, at the moment, we do those five because those are the five that were in the human microbiome project. Ah, so it sort of gave us a basis for the data and sort of sample collection procedures that have been well validated. Yeah, we sample all of those microbiomes, all those five different sites. And then what consumers can get out of it is they can see what's in their microbiome, first of all, and then how that compares to other people, and then how it compares to existing studies of the microbiome. So right now in our user interface, it's very nerdy. It's very, you know, I know from our crowdfunding campaign, but you can see sort of what are your bacteria? How does your distribution compare to other people's distribution of bacteria? And then you can learn a little bit about each of the bacteria that are in your sample and how they relate to existing studies, um, which studies involved which bacteria we're building right now. And this, this should be out in the next few months, like two or three months. We're actively in the development process is software that will go a step further and give you much more data analysis about what's in your sample. But the cool thing about doing it now is that we're basically biobanking your sample. So if you sample now, it's not like it's lost and you, you know, missed your opportunity. You can see what it was like now. It's the only way to sort of grab what your microbiome is like now. And then as our interface gets better and our data gets better, that sample gets better, but you can also compare it to future samples. Right. So it's the same as genetics. Basically, you'll be able to re-examine that same sample and so it'll be updated. Exactly. Well, actually, we we store the data, so we don't need to re we can resample it later if, you know, technology changes completely and we need to totally resample it. We can do that. But we can also, um, we have the data from that sample. And as, let's say you sample now and you're like, oh, that's interesting. My bacteria, fine. But then six months from now, you want to make a radical change in your diet. You say, you know, I'm not, maybe I need to cut out dairy. I don't know. And you try that. Then we can sample afterwards and we can show you the difference between those two things. And we'll have the earlier sample. So we'll know what it was like before. Right. So you're talking about like things that influence it. And I guess it's quite kind of important to mention that your microbiomes or microbiomes can change. A lot of emphasis is put on the gut these days. You know, that's the one that they talk about most in the press and stuff. So I guess it's the one with the most research. It is. It's the one with the most research. And it's also the one with the most, it's the richest environment for bacteria. That's why the most research is done there, because it has the most bacteria in it, you know, and your of any site in your body. And it also is, I mean, obviously, because that's where you process food and waste, you know, the, it has the most biological activity relating to all parts of your body. So they found really interesting connections between the gut and the brain, for example, that are not what you would expect. You know, there's really interesting relations between the microbiome and, you know, depression or autism or things that you might not expect. But they don't say that, for example, about the nose microbiome, because that's just less likely. Right, right, right. So in terms 
terms of you just mentioned a few diseases and, and, and conditions, there's things like obesity mentioned, diabetes, acne, allergies. There's quite a range which are now linked in some research to the microbiome. How far along do you think that is? Do you think it's got a quite a long way to go? Or do you think it's interesting for someone, say, who has one of these conditions to get their microbiome done? I think it's not that far off. And I probably think that because this is our field and what we're working on, and we know that the possibilities of what things can happen quite quickly. Um, I think it's not that far off because because we're collecting all this information that can be useful in actually doing something about it. I mean, at the moment, this is a consumer product. It's not intended to treat health conditions or diagnose health conditions, but we'll have the information and we can do, when we, when we do find something interesting, we can then pursue the proper channels and making sure that it's available to people who have health conditions and need it. Yeah. So, I mean, you stepped on the 23andMe landmine. Exactly. <laughs> but we didn't step on it. We were collateral damage or something. <laughs> so, you know, you said something very important there. It's a consumer, not a medical. Right. And so how, how is that evolving? Is there things you have to do or like are there, are there limits? Can you give us an idea of how you're going to go with that? We try to be really careful and we try to be careful because we don't want to get in the trouble that they got into, but also because there's sort of a really important public health responsibility not to give people information that is dangerous, poorly understood, that will lead them to do things that are you know, bad for them without understanding why or mistakenly thinking they understand why. I think it's it's really important to do that. So we're careful to, we're sort of pursuing a two-pronged strategy. One is for things that involve diet, wellness, health, you know, people's curiosity about science, like that's fairly safe in, in my view. And then things that involve serious health conditions, we're, we're being much more careful with that. We want to make sure we have much more validated information and that we go through through the right channels and that people have expert consultation with their doctors or with, or even at the very least with clinicians doing research to share that information. I think, I think it's just a matter of trying to be conscious and there, there aren't any written rules. There's no where we can say, oh, here's where the line is. Let's be careful to make sure we're on the right side of it. But we're just kind of using our judgment at this point to make sure that we're thinking through the issues and trying to be responsible about how we give people information. Yeah. Good to hear you thinking ahead. So we talked a little bit about, about the things that can affect it. Do you know of any clinicians that are starting to either take this themselves or maybe take it at their patients to give them an idea? Because a lot of clinicians are trying to tackle things which aren't very well uh, treated or documented, like uh, dysbiosis and, you know, IBD, all, all of these kind of gut issues, which at the moment, it's hard to find some clinicians who's just going to say, this is the exact approach to fix this. It's not, it's not coded. It's more of an art at the moment, to say the least. Right, right. There's no standard care for a lot of things, and, that, and that's difficult because patients are then left without a good answer, even knowing which doctor to go to to try to get help. I mean, I think what what we're doing um, at the moment is that this is not a diagnostic test. It can't be used by a clinician, you know, sort of want to underscore that. But we have been involved in clinical research. So if a doctor wants to put together a research study of their patients or of participants that they solicit, we partner with them. We provide them basically with the consumer product, but since they're a clinical researcher, they can be they can have a study and they can sort of structure this, design the study the way that they want, and then communicate with their participants in the way they want, which is a way to sort of frame it experimentally so that it's not basing a diagnosis on it or giving medical advice based on the test, but they can use it to learn things about the entire population of people that they're working with. Right. And it can better inform the doctors as to, instead of guesstimating all the time. Exactly right. And it can also press through publishable research. I mean, some of these doctors are really cutting edge things and they, they want to add this to their repertoire and be able to say, oh, this is really interesting when I compare 
patient group X to patient group Y, I notice X always, you know, X has this interesting thing, the microbiome that that's publishable research. So it's, we're contributing to science through clinicians who, who are doing clinical research. A lot of, a lot of the doctors that are sort of on the cutting edge also do research as well as treat patients. So they can kind of wear both hats. Yeah. Great, great. Right. I know this kind of connects with a topic that you're a big fan of is citizen science. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Don't get me started. No. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll definitely put a link to your TED talk on that for background. But briefly, what is citizen science? What's that about? Sure. So citizen science is uh, is a word for non-scientists, non-PhD researchers in the, who work in academic labs. Sometimes they're people who have PhDs but aren't researchers who are learning about, who are, who are contributing to science in some way. It started with, actually, it's really interesting. So citizen science um, was started the that term and sort of the use of that concept was started by ornithologists who they study birds and there aren't enough ornithologists to gather data about all the birds. So there are a lot of amateur bird watchers who contribute to the science of ornithology by spotting birds in various areas or reporting on, on the things that they've seen. So it started out there, but this concept of involving the public in research is really just a type of crowdsourcing. So the term we, we use for BioNow is, is now crowd science, because I think it sort of communicates the fact that this is not just, it's not about their citizenship or what country you're a part of or whatever, but the idea that the whole crowd can be a part of science and not just data collection, as in birdwatching, but also hypothesis generation, funding of science, evaluation of science. I mean, we haven't done all these things yet, but we really want to. That's interesting because Ubiome is basically, you just brought up a whole bunch of things and that's what Ubiome is. Right, exactly. So our, our goal is to use the fact that people are interested in the microbiome, that it affects all of us, that we all sort of are research, potential research subjects because, you know, we have a microbiome and we do things that change it, to allow us to change the way science is done and have people fund science, evaluate science, learn about their bodies and contribute that knowledge to help others. And I think that it's really a change in the way science, which is this very institutional system. It's very much like the change from only four broadcast channels to like YouTube. (laughs) Right, right, right. right. It's a perfect analogy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's about participation. I mean, this is taken from your talk, but you know, it makes perfect sense. It's like participation. The good example I thought you gave also there, I mean, obviously YouTube allows anyone to participate and everyone sees people putting forth innovation, innovative content, you know, that then goes to TV and other places, which is a good analogy. Like if TV was science, like now and again, they'll they'll find something in the crowd, which is useful and they'll integrate it. Um, So it's kind of like taking that participation. Exactly. And then it makes it something that everyone can do. I mean, YouTube is full of teenagers covering pop songs or something that, you know, would never even have been possible to be shared before because you would never waste your, you know, really expensive broadcast, you know, spectrum on, on something like that. But you don't know who's going to be the next pop sensation. You can find that. And it's kind of a trivial example, but you can see that in the world of science, you know, you don't, you don't know who will come up with a really interesting discovery. And this was part of the theme of that talk was that I think it's not a researcher who's paid to study an area is obviously passionate about their work and an expert and what they're doing is really valuable. But a person who's suffering from that condition is also really valuable. And I feel like they've been totally excluded from the system at this point. And integrating in their own knowledge about themselves can add so much. Um, This is an example I didn't give in the talk, but I think is really, really interesting. A, A friend of mine is a spinal cord researcher, and she told me, I should probably verify the story, but what she told me was really interesting. She said that the field of spinal cord research changed really dramatically 
when um, most spinal cord researchers are not spinal cord patients, right? Like most of them are not. They kept on working on trying to get people to walk. And when they finally realized after they there was a researcher who was a spinal cord injury patient who did a survey to say, you know, what do you actually want us to be researching? And it turned out that most spinal cord injury patients They've accepted the fact that they're not going to walk, and that's just sort of the way it is. But what they want to be able to do is all the things we do. They want to be able to get around easily. They want to be able to sit comfortably. They want to be able to socialize. They want to be able to go to the bathroom comfortably. Like they want all the things that, that we take for granted. And that's actually what they care about, not learning to walk again, because that would be nice, but that's not affecting their, their lives as much as just basic quality of life now. And that really touched me, because I thought, you know, how much money and time is spent researching the wrong things that patients don't actually care about because it sounds really good. We're going to make them walk again. You know, it just sounds like you're the you know, great savior that's going to come in and solve all their problems, but maybe they want totally different problems solved. Yeah. And you've seen a lot of communities which get kind of negative and fed up with the way things are being tackled. And they're often the most motivated as well as a lot of passion and motivation because obviously it's affecting their lives very so if we could harness that motivation and passion, that, that could obviously help push things forward. But it seems like citizen science, what it needs uh, and what you spoke about is like it's basically helping to organize and structure this crowdsourcing. Because obviously, if everyone just goes off in their different directions and it's not controlled, that's just a mess. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think sort of our role is to create infrastructure that makes it easy for people to study things. And that's that's what we want to do. That helps us business-wise, and it also just helps us make that change in the world happen, to have you know, the average person be able to have access to these cutting-edge DNA sequencing technologies that most people don't have access to just by making it as simple as you buy a kit, you answer some questions, and then you get some results. So, And we hope to see that. I'd love to see this in other areas, too, because I think there are so many things that are sort of very disorganized in the approach of patients who have them or even just subjects of interest. A lot of things that people are just curious about that no one will, the sort of greater scientific establishment is not super concerned with whether kombucha is like good for you or something like nobody cares about that because they obviously much more important things to worry about in terms of public health. But it's interesting to people and I think people should be able to fund the research that they either desperately need or that they just are curious about. And I think that should be open to everybody. I think there's another analogy. If you look at uh, businesses as entities and the, and the way they've evolved over time, you know, it used to be from top down, they would design products and push them on the consumers and that wouldn't work so well, but they've become these marketing, they're a lot more integrated. They look at customer feedback. And in a way you're talking about applying that same concept to science as well, having this feedback mechanism, which helps to direct the, the research also from the end users or the end benefiters, say. Exactly. I think that's true. I mean, it's sort of changing from the sort of theory of the firm and having this, you know, institution that broadcasts things out to people to this network where people can interact in a much flatter environment. And I think that's very beneficial for innovation because it'll help us. The best ideas, this was... Uh, um, some were talking about it. We worked with some researchers and they were saying, you know, the best ideas are not the ones in our building because you can't hire everybody in the world who's thinking about your problem. The best ideas are out there in the crowd somewhere and the ideas to bring them in. Yeah. Well, it's very exciting. You know, I hope you help to push that movement forward, obviously. I hope so too. It's, it's something I care a lot yeah. about. <laughs> well, it's these kind of things which really, really change. It's a revolution rather than just an evolution. So that leads to a lot bigger benefits. So the other thing I wanted to touch on is obviously there's a lot of different things that can affect the microbiome. Some of the things we've spoken about so far is diet, right? Everyone kind of understands that diet can impact it. And we look at things like probiotics, 
prebiotics dietary fiber, high fat versus low fat diet, artificial sweeteners have been in the news recently. How do you kind of look at the diet's influence and how far, how much understanding we have? Is it a big impact? Is it the major impact or do we have to look broader than that? It's a good question. So it's it's a major impact, but the question is sort of teasing. It's a very complex impact. So the question is, and this is, you know, our data science team, work science, try to, trying to figure out, you know, teasing apart those different effects. You know, people who eat very healthy diets also tend to exercise a lot and, and you know, be young and healthy otherwise and, and sort of have this cluster of things and sort of separating out what is the effect of diet, what is the effect of exercise. And we're lucky with the microbiome, or it's sort of a great feature of the microbiome that these things change, that it changes over time in response to a change. So we can say, okay, you are not much older and you are still equally healthy, but you've changed your diet and here's how your microbiome changed in response. And we can kind of see those differences. So that's very interesting, but there's a lot of effects to tease out, but we definitely see huge differences. I mean, you can look at, now that we've looked at, you know, thousands of these, we can say, oh, that's a vegetarian because you can just kind of tell by looking at the microbiome, which is really kind of fun, actually. Yeah. My results are actually kind of weird. Oh, tell me more. Um, interesting. <laughs> like compared to everyone's, I've got very high, uh, very low bacteroides. Huh. Interesting. And very high uh, Firmicutes. Yeah. Uh, so like 78%. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so I was actually looking at uh, the American, is it called the American? American Gut. Right, the American yeah. Gut and Jeff Leach and what he's doing yes. in uh, Tanzania with yes. the Hadzabe <laughs> hunter-gatherers. Could you give your perspective a little bit on that? Because I'm sure you're very aware of that more than me, more than I am. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. So, I mean, their scientific project out of the University of Colorado that's that's working on some very some similar things. I mean, I think our difference is that we're not just America, we're not just the gut. So, I suppose that, you know, it's sort of very easy comparison to make in that way. We're also their nonprofit and part of an academic research project, and and we're we're for profit. But I think the there are also some technical differences um, in terms of sample collection techniques, um, lab extraction techniques that are really technical. But suffice to say, there is like a standard microbiome extraction method and we both use well-documented very much validated research methods they're just different methods well just on that because there was a little bit of controversy on that when someone there was the, yeah so could you talk a little bit about that is that because is it differences in samples is it differences in the approach or so or because the two samples came back a little bit different from the two companies there's a number of differences they came back a lot different. And I think the reason is, so there are a few things. So we use a different sample collection technique. So when you when you sample with American Gut, they take a swab and they rely on, on the swab drying out so that your it doesn't change in transit. It's basically, you just send back a Q-tip, like or the sterile swab in the mail. And it isn't preserved in any way. And it isn't, there's nothing to freeze the DNA at that point in time. So it leads to sort of, there's an argument to be made that it leads to overgrowth because it's things are growing as you're transiting in the mail to their lab before the sam sample is processed. And maybe some things are dying as well. So well, dying is okay because they're there. When you look at the DNA, dying is okay. It, but it's other things from the air landing on it, growing in it, and then you think that was what was in the gut, not what was actually... You don't know what happened after the gut. And everything that's there, you see is there. So they do some correction for that with bioinformatics, but it just leads to different results. The results are biased in different ways. And then as far as uh, the actual extraction technique, we both use slightly different, this is too technical, but we use slightly different kits 
for the extraction of the DNA that leads to different results. But it seems to me that there's a there's a reasonable way to translate between the two based on that part of it. Right. And you had a blog post on that. Yeah, we did um, a blog post. People are interested that, exactly. in the technical. But I think, uh, yeah, we, we did a blog post on that. I think going forward, it would be one of the things that we're really interested in is having a more standardized method so that everyone's kind of on the same page about what that is. And I know there are some academic standards movements, but we'd love to be involved in that and do some comparison studies and sort of see what see how they compare, because it's in everyone's interest to have a standard for how microbiomes are measured. Right, right. And so they have that now for DNA. Right, right. exactly. So, right. So, so you just have to do the work, the collaboration to get to the same point? Well, everyone has to agree. And getting academics to agree on things is really you know, in an emerging field. I think this has happened in many emerging fields where there are different standards and everyone thinks their standard is the best. So us being no exception to that. So I think... I think we're a little ways away from having a translation between the two methods. I think that will be much more important as we move toward clinical results where you actually want to get the same result everywhere that you do it. Whereas in academic research labs, this isn't far from uncommon. You know, only 10% of studies in the biological sciences can be reproduced. So this is not something that's never happened before. <laughs> yeah, no, this is actually a common point that comes up in this podcast, whether it's blood samples, whether it's uh, heart rate variability. There's like different standards at the moment because a lot of this stuff is still new. So I guess the rule for consumers is if you start with Ubiome, stay with Ubiome so that you can compare. If you say you start with American gut, you, you stay with American gut because otherwise you can't compare your results. Exactly. Exactly. I, mean, I wish they were more interoperable, but I think that's the that's the current standard. I think it's sort of, I mean, the goal of American gut's a little bit different too. I and mean, their goal is to map the American gut, right? Like what's in it, which is a really interesting scientific goal and very laudable, but that's different than our goal, which is to give consumers valuable information about their own microbiome while contributing to science. So it's a very different goal because our main focus is on giving the individual what they want and then letting them have more control over science. So going back to Tanzania uh, and Ahadzabe, because what, what was interesting there is like, it's difficult for us to know what we're aiming for, what's good, what's bad in the microbiome. You're doing interesting stuff at Ubiome because you have these categories, which if you mind explaining quickly how you, what you do there. Yeah, of course. So yeah, so we compare, we sort of picked, so in our new version, we're going to have, these will be much more flexible than they are right now. But what we did now for this first version was we, we have specific categories of people that have very different microbiomes for each other and you can compare yourself against them. So you can say, here's my comparison against vegetarians, people on the paleo diet, people who've taken antibiotics recently. Drunk a lot of alcohol. Um, people who drink yeah. a lot. Yeah, exactly. People drink a lot of alcohol. Um, so we sort of compare against those categories and those are interesting ones that we sort of see really dramatic, you know, you can see a really dramatic difference right away. So it's, it's much more interesting to people to do that. Um, comparing to hunter-gatherer tribes, it's really interesting. I was actually talking to someone. Um, so we do research projects for researchers also as looking at vaccines in the developing world. And we usually come at this from such a totally different angle because people assume that people in the developing world have the perfect gut. And if we could only go back to our hunter-gatherer ancestors, we would all be, you know, so healthy and I mean, I suppose that's true for chronic diseases that are diseases of civilization, but it's not true when you're very sick with a cute illness because your water isn't clean right, and right, right. you want to that's be vaccinated point. against it, for example. So it was really funny to have this conversation with this vaccine researcher who was saying, you know, this is really interesting. You're assuming that the gut of people in the developing world is better, but maybe that isn't true. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it's just true. Like, I mean, the, the whole point is they're looking at the Hadzabe and, and other people because they supposedly haven't changed much over time. 
But the, I think the most interesting thing that I saw there was the diversity. How important do you think diversity is? Because like the argument was that the Hadzabe uh, have a much more diverse microbiome, so that's good. Is that true? Is that for sure? Or That's such a good question. Many studies have shown that positive, I'll answer this a bit evasively, okay. many studies have shown <laughs> that there are positive outcomes correlated with diverse microbiomes. For example, they do, they've, they've been studies in elderly patients that when they are sicker, when they have less diverse microbiomes, and that perhaps that's part of the moving to a more institutional diet as you move into assisted care or assisted living facilities or something, part of that is the microbiome becomes less diverse and that's worse for you. There's been a lot of research about how, you know, eating a variety, being sort of eating a variety of, of foods, sort of following Michael Holland's food <laughs> dictums will make you have a more diverse microbiome and that's associated with a lot of healthy outcomes. So there's a lot of research and I think it makes a lot of sense that that would be healthier. Um, there's also research about how when you have one corner, that a lot of health conditions are because there's a cornerstone species you just can't get rid of. For example, Clostridia difficile infections are one species that's sort of taken over your microbiome and is now, and that makes you very sick. So I think the evidence is there that diversity is good, but I, I hate to, I mean, the scientist in me to some degree has to say this is good and this is bad because there's always some kind of exception to that yeah like we said before it's very early stages um so it's just kind of indicators so i guess an interesting thing in when i'm looking at you where i'm now like uh if i compare myself against people who have taken antibiotics um antibiotics are known to kill off bacteria of course and part of your biome so i think everyone can kind of see ah yeah that's not a good thing for your biome right i think that's kind of commonly accepted now so that's one interesting thing you can do in your biome you say you compare yourself to people who have taken antibiotics ah Am I more diverse or am I less diverse or the same and give you a rough idea, like healthy you are? Right. What we want to do, I mean, I wouldn't make the claim that it makes you more healthy, but we could definitely say that with antibiotics, how were you before you took them versus after you took them? Like, I think that would be really interesting. So it's not just you to the population, it's you to yourself and say, sample now, sample after you take antibiotics and then see the difference between the two and, and then sample a few months later and see if you've gone back to where you should, because most people bounce back to where they were, or at least some, they feel fine. And it sort of looks like their gut microbiome is very similar, but maybe that's not true of you. And it would sort of be the only way to tell. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff there in terms of like tracking your own health and sort of having a baseline that you store now so that you find out, for example, you have Lyme disease or other, some other health condition that makes you take chronic long-term doses of antibiotics. You kind of know back where you were when you started. Right. And then at least you'd be like, okay, I was healthy at that point. Maybe I should try to get back to where I was in terms of my microbiome. So at least you have. And some of this is all in the future, but the part that's not in the future is we can store the sample now and we can tell you what's in it now. Right, right. And the part that's in the future is, okay, how do we get you back to where right. you were? And how do we know what is a good change and what is a bad change? Like those are all the things we're working on really actively and we should have some answers and then, you know, not in the few, next few months, but in the near future. But there's there's just a lot of really interesting things we can do. Once we have the data stored, we can then kind of have a basis for comparison. So there's a whole bunch of people doing experiments right now. Like we can call that citizen scientistry or like crowd scientistry, right? So there's people taking uh, dietary fiber, I'm quite amazed because I just got back to the US and I'm going into like Whole Foods and place and probiotics is huge. It's, it's grown out of proportion. You see, even in the drinks, like half of the drinks seem to be probiotic drinks now. And so obviously that's really, really pushed. But there's some people like I know clinicians like Chris Kresser, if you, if you know him, he's like, well, there's evidence to say that probiotics don't change your microbiome that much. Right. So in terms of experiments, you know, I don't know, you might do on yourself or you think are interesting. What kind of things would you think? 
Oh, this is so good. So one of the things that we would love to do and that we're sort of trying to set the infrastructure for is to test out different probiotics on different people because, you know, well, we won't test it on them. They will take it and then we will test them. And, you know, of course, this will be part of them, us researching the effect of the probiotic on the individual. This will be sort of part of a study where we can compare like to like, you know, like people taking like probiotics and sort of their their outcomes. Because I think there's, it's really interesting. There are a lot of studies that show that either probiotics are mixed or that they don't work. But then there are a ton of anecdotes from people, and we hear from them all the time, who say, this changed my life. Like, this actually worked. And I don't think they're all making it up or they all, it's all the placebo effect. I think it really is having an effect on some people. But the question is who and under what conditions and, and what is it doing? how do you know and what is it doing? And these are all really good questions. Yeah, I guess for all we know, it's not actually affecting the microbiome, it's affecting something else. I mean, you could call it the microbiome, but maybe it's not the bacteria or who knows? Right. Maybe it's not the bacteria. Yeah, it could. I mean, it's an ecosystem there, right? So it could be all Maybe it's like protecting you from the yeast overgrowth or who knows, you know? It's it like, could be, you know, right? Yeah. I mean, or may, yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe what you want is not the presence of that bacteria, but the absence of something else. Now, I think that part is for the easiest. I think that if it is doing something, there's some mechanism, right? So that part we can figure out later. I think what's the most immediately useful to people who have questions or problems and want want to take something but don't know what or don't know if it's worth it for them to do it it's just is to see what what probiotics have what effect on what people i think that would be really valuable well i think it's really interesting in these areas where people are spending a lot of money uh, it's obvious to me that people are now spending a lot of money on probiotics and they're starting to spend money on prebiotics you see all the supplements now and see people talking about resistant starch if people are spending money on these things, I think it'd be really useful when data actually starts coming out to prove it one. Because the marketing always goes way faster. Yes. The hype goes way faster than right. any of this, <laughs> this stuff really. And like, who knows? It's anecdotal. For myself, I think I do better with kefir. When I come to the US, I love the kefir. So I'll drink that and I tend to feel way better with that. But, you know, I've heard other people say that, but who knows why? or what that's about. So don't you want to, I mean, don't you just have this natural drive to be like, why, why me and who? And yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who so, else? so I'll be doing, I'll be yeah. doing another sampling of you biome this, this month to uh, figure out if that's changed anything because I've been doing more of that lately. So I, I started eating, I don't know if you know, if you ever eat Quest bars, which are, they have, prebiotic fiber, which is inulin in them basically. So they're indigestible fiber that's not supposed to count as carbohydrates. And I don't know, I feel differently when I eat them versus bars that have maltodextrin or something and then this sort of obvious, you know, a digestible carbohydrate. I don't know. So it's really interesting. We get to do a lot of experiments around here and just sort of see what the difference is. So Jeff Leach is arguing that dietary fiber has a more, a bigger impact on changing your microbiome based on his self-tests. And what do you think of that? Um, so that's interesting. So, I mean, there's a lot of things you can say about that. It's N of one, like, how, you know, I mean, you right, know, right, of course, like, yeah. there's all those sorts of things. I think that, so I think the answer to all these things is sort of more research. Like, that's interesting. I mean, a lot of things have been discovered by scientists looking at themselves and saying, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why that happens or when I do X, Y happens. But I think you really do need and what crowdsourcing lets you do and what the power of the Internet lets you do is say, okay, that's an interesting hypothesis. Now let's have a, a thousand people test that and see what happens, you know, <laughs> and then you can find an answer to it. So I think that's the goal. That's what's great about crowd science is that it's not my opinion versus his opinion. It's his hypothesis versus the data. And then we see. <laughs> right, right. I guess a good principle for the people at home is before you do anything, get your microbiome done so that if you are going to take probiotics or you're going to take 
uh, resistant starch or prebiotics. At least you can see what has changed, if anything has changed, especially if you're, you it has any health impact, especially a negative one. You want to kind of know where you could go potentially back to in order to reverse that. Right, exactly. Or even just to have it banked so that then in the future, you'll be able to, when the science of therapeutics and diagnostics is caught up to the science of just take, of just processing the samples, then the data will be there. Exactly. So on that point, basically, how stable do you see the microbiome in terms of, we often talk about how often is it worthwhile and it adds value to track the data, right? Because it's not that expensive now, like microbiomes, right? Really relatively cheap. And I assume eventually it's going to be even cheaper. But how quickly does the data change? We know that the microbiome changes, but how long is it worthwhile? We haven't done this study. I mean, we really cool this to like test everyone's microbiome for a day, you know, test like 100 people's microbiome for a day. And we, we haven't done this study, you know, every day for like two weeks. We haven't done this study yet, but we've talked with certain partners about doing this and we, we may be launching something about this. Um, but there are research studies that have been done on this. There's sort of a a change on the order of every two weeks for if you make a major change, like if you change your diet, you'll see it within two weeks. Um, antibiotics, of course, act much more quickly. But if you a dietary change or a habit change, you'll see it within two weeks. When you say habit, what could that mean? Oh, um, let's say you start running marathons or something. You start training right, exercise or right. exercise. You move, you travel to a different country and eat completely different food. And I suppose that's a dietary change too, but you drink different water and it may not be like consciously you changing your diet, but you're in a totally different place. We're still talking about diet a lot, but actually like just if I'm living in another country is the fact that I'm touching things, if I'm living in a different environment, which where the bacteria could potentially be different, or if I'm living with a, a new partner, for example. Right. Well, probably not your gut microbiome, but definitely your the oral microbiome changes when people Kiss. start kissing <laughs> a new person. <laughs> so that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And the genital um, microbiome, I, I assume right, too. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> the genital microbiome as well. We we do we do collect general samples and we do ask questions about that and it's it's really interesting. We're we're adding our sort of the same data insights for the other sites as we do for the for the gut microbiome and it's really interesting. I guess there's less people doing genitals just because it's a bit more of a politically sensitive topic. <laughs> yes, <it's> sort of. <laughs> um, also, sort of, we sell it in a pack with the other sites, so I yeah, I think there are less people. Do there are definitely less people doing it, but it's still I think interesting the kind of insights that you can come up with because you kind of see how people's habits you know how is it and it may not even have entirely to do with sex it may have to do with women after menopause how is your microbiome different or at different parts of your menstrual cycle or in men if you're circumcised or not or if you know just sort of other things that are not directly related to sexual activity but have to do with you know your own body and how it changes over time yeah this is a fantastic subject. I'd like to ask you, you know. If... <laughs> Always great to have, you know, genitals and mouths on the, on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, my next workup, I'm going to get the full thing. Last time I just did the gut, but whatever. I'll, I'd like to find it all out. I'm not bothered about the political uh, sensitivities. So what do you think will happen in the next five or ten years in this area? Oh, gosh, I think there's going to be a real explosion. What are you excited about? What am I excited? Oh, there's mm. so much I'm excited about. So I, I think there's going to be a real explosion of... Um, Therapeutics is, is the proper word for this, but let's just describe that in a little more detail. I think that real explosion of drugs, probiotics, diagnostic tests, just really taking this data and doing something useful with it that helps out 
specific groups of people with either with health conditions or with serious health conditions or even very minor health conditions like acne or athlete's foot. I think there'll just be this explosion of valuable products that come out of this kind of this kind of data. And I'm really excited about that because I think there's a lot of really amazing a lot of problems we all have. And so out of interest, how would a product developer work with you? So we we do work with researchers that are doing this kind of thing. Um, and basically what we do are really big studies about specific questions. So we, someone's looking at dandruff or if they're looking at athlete's foot or they're looking at, you know, heart disease or, or autism or something, you know, sort of a, a major, <laughs> something with much more important consequences. We do a study, we design a study with them and then we partner with them and they use our research techniques. And often they'll use our, depending on the type of study, they, they will often just use our kits where they basically, we handle the whole study process for them. And they basically give, give the participant the UBiome product and then they also share the the data so that they can use it for academic purposes to, you know, publish a paper bat. So that sounds like a great model. That sounds, I mean, that's, that's your crowd science. It's crowd science. Exactly. And the participant, what's, what's unique and what I really like is that in almost all cases, the participant gets their own data too, which is really unusual. In scientific studies, usually you participate, maybe you even get paid to participate, but you never get your own data. Right, right. And I've never heard of a study where you get your own data, but here the participant gets to do their own study also at the same time, right? They, their data is banked. They can access it later. They can do whatever they want with it. And at the same time, they're contributing to a scientific study that they find interesting. The other exciting news for you guys is you've joined Y Combinator, Mark Anderson and co. And, you know, you've obviously got big investment now. As far as I know, in terms of microbiome project, you're by far, you know, the biggest investment. And so if you correct me if I'm wrong, but what does that mean for you and where you can take the company now? And so what we can do is we can scale up and we can make sure that the experience is as good as possible for the user. So revamping our website, revamping our boxes, you know, making customer service better, like all those sorts of things of just sort of making the experience better for people. But we can also be able to analyze the data in more detail and come up with really interesting insights for the participants so they can get valuable information. That's what that money is for, is to sort of give us the resources to make things better much faster. And a couple of personal questions before before we finish. That'd be great. What kind of data metrics do you track for your own body? Anything like microbiome, anything else on a routine basis? That's a good question. So I track all my food in my fitness pal. I'm probably me and like 25 million other people or something. <laughs> um, you know, it's got every food. If you travel to China, there's like the fast food chain is in there too. You know, there's sort of like every possible wow. food. So I track all So are you taking photos or how, how are you doing? No, that? I just enter. I enter everything. Right. Um, Have you got a special app or anything you like? My, well, I use, I use my fitness pal, which is the most popular one. I don't know. I'm probably in there like six times a day logging everything I eat. And then, <laughs> and then you know, I also, I also do lots of little experiments with myself in terms of like how much protein I'm eating, how much fat I'm eating. Um, I just started using keto sticks recently. I've never used those before, but it's oh, kind of. Yeah, I've just got the, you know, the ketonics. Oh, um, no. Not I just did an interview, the last interview. Anyway, but the ketonics allows, is, is like slightly better correlated because it measures your breath, which is more correlated with the blood. Oh, awesome. Levels. Yeah, I was looking at the yeah. blood kits also. Like they have those. I don't know. They're I'm just, expensive. Yeah, they are yeah. expensive. And I'm, you know, yeah. maybe it could be business expense. I don't know. But mm. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, I'm, I'm starting with the sticks and just sort of sampling and seeing, you know, how I can correlate how I feel with ketosis like if i feel warm and you know tired then that's probably because I'm are you going to be trying intermittent fasting or anything like that or i might 
right. I haven't, I gained the startup 30. So I think I'm like trying various things to, you know, so we'll see. I mean, intermittent fasting is really interesting. And um, I don't think I'll do the warrior diet though, because that's the one where you eat once a day. And I feel like I would just sort of keel over, but, um, but it's really interesting. And I, I like that our users are generally people who are interested in these kinds of things. And I like that we can bond over our, you know, <laughs> <laughs> our, our weirdness, <laughs> our various, yeah. you know, weird potions that, that we're eating and tracking about ourselves. <laughs> so what, what has been the biggest insight you've learned about your biology through doing some kind of tracking or? Oh, that's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. I think, I think in terms of, in terms of the microbiome, I think I've sort of. Um, my co-founder is a lifelong vegetarian. He was never eaten meat in his entire life, and he was. You know, his parents are vegetarians, and he hasn't eaten meat since. So his his microbiome is very different than mine because I've sort of been an omnivore my whole life, and it's a really interesting to sort of see the differences between people that share a lot of environments in common but are you know, eating very different foods. So I think that was a really interesting insight. As far as tracking tracking myself over time, I think I'm lucky in that I don't have a health condition that that sort of gives me a, an unusual microbiome. Mine is very normal, so I, that hasn't really it hasn't really shown up very much in the things that I'm the things I'm doing. I'm still I'm tracking a lot of these dietary changes, which I just started doing. So we'll see how they how they go. Yeah, well, that's a good point you bring up. Someone gets a uh, microbiome done, then if they fit straight as the in the middle of the road, then you know it's probably not a bad thing. Right, exactly. No, it's it's a very good thing. It also depends on how extreme the experiments you are doing on yourself are. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think I'm just sort of dipping my toe in the water of like cool things people can do to track their health. I There are definitely users who do much more, much more interesting things and sort of want to see the effects of them. Right, right. So um, what would be your number one recommendation to someone trying to use some form of data to make a better decision about their body's health and performance? I think there's sort of like advanced versus non. So I think the very basic thing is I think tracking what your food and exercise really changes your behavior dramatically. And I've noticed this and that's a very obvious thing. And, you know, advanced quantified self people are going to be like, ha I've been doing that for like 20 years. <laughs> you know? But for the average person, I think it really makes a big difference because you just start seeing, you know, you don't want to eat junky food when you know you're going to record it and you don't, you start seeing how good you feel when you eat certain foods versus other ones. And I think it's, it's really motivating and it's really disciplining. So I think that's, that's sort of the basic recommendation. I think advanced recommendation is just sort of, don't be afraid of scientific literature. Working with scientists and as a scientist, you see like what goes into scientific research and you see that, you know, it's this really messy field where people are trying different things and sometimes they work and sometimes they can't be reproduced. So don't be afraid to delve into literature and see what's there for you and then try to make it work for you. And don't sort of take it as like received wisdom that it has to be exactly right. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Thank you. I mean, those both of those are very great points, uh, like the psychological benefits and accountability. Also, I think that's probably yeah, one of the biggest things that's happening right now with all the devices and everything, just reinforcing behaviors. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it can't hurt and it takes a little bit of attention, but I think it's attention well spent because it helps people learn to track themselves better and just learn to understand what's going on when they feel a certain way, what is likely to be causing it. And I think it's really beneficial. Jessica, thank you so much for your time today. I know you're very, very busy at the moment. So it's been great that you've made the time for the show. This is so fun. I'm so glad. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. This is really great. All right. Well, thank you very much. Awesome. I'll talk to you later. Bye. 
get more of the quantified body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T H E Q U A N T I F I E D B O D Y dot N E T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.